Welcome back, everyone, to the Home Rice Pick Podcast. Er, wait a minute. That should read Homeric Epic Podcast. My mistake. In this episode, we will cover Book 6 of the Iliad, and delve into the mind and life of Hector, the mortal man, as I like to call him. Book 6 is not the action-packed epic that Book 5 was, and it's much more introspective and more tragic, as we shall soon see. As always, before we dive into Book 6, let me quickly recap the events of the previous chapter. Book 5 commences with Athena bestowing Diomedes with Menos and Tharsos, might and courage, enabling him to distinguish himself amongst the Greeks and obtain substantial glory. Diomedes confronts Phegeus and Idaeus, eliminating one while the other retreats, finding sanctuary under Hephaestus' protection. Subsequently, Athena then compels Ares to withdraw from the battlefield, ensuring that Zeus can bestow glory upon the mortal combatants. The narrative unfolds with successive depictions of Trojan soldiers meeting their demise, each presented with humanizing details from the backgrounds. Diomedes then spots Pandarus, who shoots an arrow at him and strikes him in the shoulder. Diomedes implores Athena for healing, and she not only mends his wound, but also grants him the ability to discern gods on the battlefield. Additionally, she cautions him against engaging any immortals except for Aphrodite. Returning to the fray, Diomedes wreaks havoc on the Trojans until Aeneas, the Trojan prince, dancing upon Pandarus, charges at Diomedes on his chariot. Undeterred, Diomedes hurls a spear at Pandarus, striking him in the head. Confronting Aeneas now, Diomedes hurls the first rock in the Iliad, nearly ending Aeneas' life from this. Aphrodite, Aeneas' mother, intervenes, and Diomedes, undeterred by this incursion by the gods, wounds her before she retreats to Olympus. On Olympus, Aphrodite seeks solace from her mother Dione, who heals her wound, and after some light Olympian banter, the focus returns to the battlefield. Diomedes is challenging Apollo, who is protecting the unconscious Aeneas, and he is reminded of his place in the cosmic hierarchy, and he yields. Apollo then revives Aeneas and reinstates Ares into the fighting, rekindling the Trojan ardor for battle. Sarpedon rebukes Hector, inciting him to intensify his troops' efforts. Simultaneously, the Achaeans find inspiration in Agamemnon. Amidst the ebb and flow of battle, Sarpedon prevails over Telepolemus. With Hector and Ares opposing them, the Achaeans begin to yield ground, invoking Hera's compassion. Their plea reaches Zeus, who dispatches Athena to address Ares. She galvanizes Diomedes, guiding him to spear Ares, who retreats to Olympus, and is then reprimanded by his father. The book concludes with Zeus healing Ares, preserving the celestial hierarchy without any repercussions for the gods. Like I mentioned in the last episode, the theme of Book 5 is not tragedy, as one would suspect, but instead comedy. The wounding of gods is not portrayed as serious, because they can face no consequences. They cannot die. But do you know who can die? Hector. And Book 6 is where we see in great detail the life of Troy's protector, and all the things he has to lose. I do recommend reading along with the podcast, no matter what translation of the Iliad you happen to have. Each translator has cut the gem of Homer along different facets, illuminating the beauty within in a brand new way each time. So please, compare your reading to mine, and together we can penetrate a little further into the wisdom and beauty of this poem. Before we begin the analysis, let me quickly summarize the next book. Book 6 finds us in the midst of battle, with the major Greek characters each slaying a foe. The action pauses on a particular instance of Menelaus capturing a fleeing Trojan alive 
as his chariot gets caught on a bush. Trojan Adrestos supplicates Menelaus and asks to ransom his life. Before Menelaus can be persuaded, his brother Agamemnon presses up to him to convince him otherwise. He says to leave no Trojan male alive, and the two brutally slaughter Adrestos. Nestor rallies the Greeks, and the Trojans are about to turn tail to Troy, before Helenos, Hector's brother, suggests that Aeneas and Hector rally the Trojans, and then Hector should then return to Troy and organize an offering to Athena. Hector makes no reply and begins to rally the troops before heading off to Troy. With Hector on his way, the narrative switches to the meeting between Glaucus and Diomedes. In this very famous scene, the two heroes meet between the battle lines and begin trading insults. Diomedes does not know who Glaucus is, and so he taunts him and tells a paradigmatic story. Glaucus, countering, tells Diomedes his great lineage, including the story of the mythical hero Bellerophon who slayed the Chimera. Upon hearing that Glaucus is the grandson of Bellerophon, Diomedes plants his spear in the ground. He reveals that the two share a bond of Xenia between their grandfathers, and that bond applies to them as well. They exchange gifts and go about their way, agreeing to avoid one another in the fighting. Meanwhile, Hector arrives at Troy and immediately seeks out his mother Hecuba. He tells her to gather the women and to make an offering to Athena at the temple. Ironically, the robes they lay in Athena's temple were the ones that Paris acquired on the way back from stealing Helen. Hector then visits the house of Paris, who, as you may recall, was teleported by Aphrodite to his bedchamber for some divinely sanctioned lovemaking in Book 3. Hector finds Paris in his bedchamber and lays into his brother for his apparent lack of fighting spirit. Helen chimes in as well, reviling Paris and herself, and inviting Hector to rest a moment. Hector declines, instead seeking out his own wife, Andromache, at their home. Hector does not find his wife there, but the housekeeper informs him that she is out on the walls looking for him amidst the fighting. He does not enter his home, but instead rushes out to find his wife. After crossing the city, he meets her at the Skian gates that lead to the plain. Hector sees his wife bawling and running to find him. Andromache tries to convince Hector to stay out of the fighting, but she knows she cannot change her husband's mind. Hector picks up his son and kisses him, and reassures his wife that no one will kill him. He sends them off as Paris returns, and the two set out to wage hateful war. It's not the action-packed book that Chapter 5 was. In fact, seemingly very little happens that affects the plot. Hector goes to the city, and we get some interlude from Diomedes and Glaucus. Hector meets some people, and then he comes back. It doesn't really affect the plot that much at all, but what it does affect is our emotional perception of Hector. If Homer is to have great heroes, they must be furnished with greater adversaries. In order to highlight the divine wrath of Achilles, he must send it against the most beloved hero with the most to lose, Hector. Book 6 begins with the Greeks gaining the upper hand against the Trojans and sending them steadily backwards. We can surmise the reason for this. Hector must be sent to Troy. But the current swing of the fighting also frames Hector's visit to Troy in a broader context, especially the supplication of Adrestos to Menelaus. I mentioned back in episode 2 on the Iliad Book 1 about how Homer is training us in the art of supplication. Normally, a supplicant is respected, as they are giving their life to you. And the sensible thing to do is accept their offerings and get rich. Something has changed in the war, it seems. What used to be the norm no longer applies to supplication anymore. 
Adrestos attempts to supplicate Menelaus and was right in the middle of persuading the spirit in Menelaus's breast when he is cut short by Agamemnon, who rushes up to his brother and reminds him, quote, O soft one, O Menelaus, why are you so caring of these men? I suppose only the noblest things were done in your house by the Trojans. Let not a man of them escape sheer destruction from our hands, not even he whom the mother carries in her womb. The male child, may even he not escape, but together all of them, may they be expunged from Ilion, without burial and without a trace. So speaking, the noble warrior turned his brother's heart, urging what was justified. End quote. We certainly already knew how heartless Agamemnon was, but here he is advocating for genocide. This paragraph from the king brings into question the guilt of Troy, stretching back from Priam's father, Laomedon, who cheated the gods, to Paris in his kidnapping of Helen. Is it justice to treat the whole city as guilty, even those who were not, air quotes, complicit with Paris's crime? In other words, the unborn babies at the time? Well, whatever conflicted feelings you have concerning Agamemnon and his attitudes towards the Trojans, the Iliad cares for naught, as the muse slash narrator clearly states, urging what was justified. The Greek word here translated as justified is isimos, and it has an element of decreed by the gods slash fate to it, so it really is justified. It's kind of hard to swallow, eh? But it puts it in the very hard-to-ignore terms that Troy will fall. It must fall, and all the unborn male children will be killed. It's very bleak. But remember this, Book 6 starts this way for a reason. The slaughter of Adrestos is the culmination of temporary Greek victory, and it's punctuated by a speech by old Nestor. On the Trojan side, Prince Helenos perceives their change in fortune, and advises Aeneas and Hector to rally their troops, and then have Hector return to the city to organize a supplication to Athena at her temple. Helenos caps his speech to Hector off with, quote, if she would have mercy on the city and on the wives of the Trojans and their infant children, if she would ward off the son of Tydeus from Holy Ilion, savage spearman, violent master of the rout, who I say has become the mightiest of Achaeans, who do not so fear Achilles' leader of men, who they say is sprung from a goddess, but this one rages beyond all bounds, nor has any man power to contend with his strength. End quote. Several things going on here. Firstly, the tragic irony of the Trojans asking Athena for mercy, when she is one of the gods wholeheartedly in favor of the destruction of Troy. Of course, the characters have no knowledge of this, only us outside the story. We have the reiterating of the suffering of the women and children that will occur upon Troy's fall, echoing Agamemnon's sentiment towards the unborn male children mentioned just prior. And lastly, we have the conflation between Diomedes and Achilles. Helenos says Diomedes has become the mightiest of the Achaeans. But who is normally the mightiest of Achaeans? That's right, Achilles is. Like I mentioned in the last episode, Diomedes and Achilles are meant to be compared closely to one another. Diomedes functionally stands in for Achilles during the first half of the story, sharing similar characteristics as we can see here. Finally, we come to the man of the book, Hector. Again, as to implicitly agree with Helenos's supposed course of action, Hector does not reply, but immediately begins to rally the troops. 
He then departs for Troy, and the description of him is this, quote, Black oxskin of his shield struck him at both neck and ankles, the rim which ran on the edge of his bossed shield. End quote. What is significant about this is the size and shape of the shield. Most other heroes in the Iliad fight with a round, bossed, buckler-type shield, a circle of wood or metal or animal hide with a metal circle in the center. The Hector, we are told, has a rectangular, wall-type shield, as it knocks him at both neck and ankles, something which, while anachronistic to when we think the Iliad was written down, sets him apart from the other heroes. This type of shield is a remnant from an earlier time in Greek history when such shields were much more common, and it's preserved in the Iliad. Another hero that uses such a shield is Telamonian Ajax, who is known for his great strength and as a defender of the Achaeans. Hector fills much the same role, albeit more explicitly, as the sole defender of Troy. Thus, the choice of shield, while anachronistic, has artistic justifications, symbolizes defense. Hector and Ajax will also have a duel against one another in Book 7, further connecting the two heroes who sport the same shield. But anyways, with Hector trotting off to Troy, Homer returns to the battlefield for a brief interlude. We are then treated to the meeting between Diomedes and the Lycian prince Glaucus. Diomedes, who just moments before in the story was at the height of his Aristea, and wounded both Aphrodite and Ares with Athena's help, so keep that in mind. Meeting in the space between the armies, Diomedes spies Glaucus and begins a speech, saying he has never seen Glaucus before and that many men have died from his spear. But should Glaucus be one of the immortal gods, he would not do battle with him. Strange, coming from Diomedes, who just did battle with two Olympian gods? I remember, that was under the direct sanction of Athena. Without her assistance and guidance, Diomedes is hesitant to fight a god, in line with his Sophrosune. Because of this, Diomedes launches into a paradigmatic story to justify his current course of action. The story involves a king named Lycurgus and the young god Dionysus. The story goes that young godly Dionysus was raised by nymphs on the slopes of a mountain, Nyssa. The nymphs were driven out by the king Lycurgus. And young Dionysus fled to the sea and was taken in by Thetis, until Zeus blinded Lycurgus, and then it seems that sometime later he died. It's a weird story for sure, so let's unpack it. First, I hope you notice the connection between the name Dionysus and Mount Nyssa. It is indeed one explanation for his name, combining Dios, meaning Zeus, and Nyssus from Mount Nyssa. As in many versions of the myth, Dionysus was sewn into the thigh of Zeus and then born from him. Secondly, the mention of Thetis in this story. We've already heard one story how Thetis sheltered the god Hephaestus when he was thrown from Olympus by Zeus. This story of Thetis sheltering young Dionysus is less relevant than the first one. Dionysus does not play any major role in the Iliad, while Thetis will pull her strings with Hephaestus in Book 18 to make new armor for Achilles. Regardless, the story illustrates Thetis' separation from the world of mortals. She has nursed gods and has lived for an exceptionally long time before now. This alienation from mortals colors her relationship with Achilles all the more, increasing the gulf between the two to an immense degree. Thirdly, this passage is also another instance of the paradigmatic story structures told by heroes throughout the Iliad. They use such stories to give grounds for a course of action. Because their ancestors did it this way, 
so too must they. But it makes you wonder, did the original audience approach the Iliad in the same way these heroes approach their paradigmatic stories? seems the Iliad would have liked them to, as it repeatedly uses the concept of the paradigma for literary and dramatic effect. After Diomedes' story, young Glaucus replies with one of the most famous similes in the Iliad, repeated by scores of poets afterwards. Quote, Great-hearted son of Tydeus, why do you ask my lineage? As a generation of leaves, so is the generation of men. The wind scatters some leaves to the ground, but the forest grows others that flourish and in the time of spring come to succeed them. So a generation of men either grows or it dies. End quote. As always, lots to unpack here. Firstly, Glaucus knows who Diomedes is, likely because he has just witnessed him raging the battlefield, slaughtering dozens. But Diomedes does not know who Glaucus is, Glaucus begins with the mock rhetorical question, why do you ask my lineage? Implying his lineage is famous enough that Diomedes should know it. But instead of launching directly into a lengthy catalogue of names as we have heard before, Glaucus takes time to ponder the impermanence of such lineages. Quote, As a generation of leaves, so is the generation of men. The Greek word for generation here is genee, and is where the gen part of generations comes from. It is also the ancient Greek word for race or descent. So Glaucus is twisting the meaning of the word here as he waxes on about the transience of human life, right at the beginning of a tale about the generations of his family. In describing death as the common lot of mortals and implicitly mentioning the gulf between mortal and divine, Glaucus connects his story to Diomedes' recounting of the Lycurgus story, and also Diomedes' recent assaults against the gods. Upon explaining this generation of leaves bit to Diomedes, Glaucus is revealing that he does not fear the mortal's fate and is willing to fight Diomedes no matter what. But he has to finish telling his lineage first, which, we shall see, is what saves him from Diomedes' wrath in the end. Glaucus' genealogical tale starts with the mythical hero Sisyphus, the one of rock-rolling-up-the-hill fame. Sisyphus fathered Glaucus, and Glaucus begat Bellerophon, the hero who slayed the Chimera with the help of the winged horse Pegasus. Bellerophon is current Glaucus's grandfather, but since Bellerophon is from mainland Greece and Glaucus is from Lycia, modern-day southern Turkey, Glaucus must explain this inconsistency. He launches into a fantastic folk-style mythic tale that parallels several other ancient story patterns. Bellerophon, being the chaste and upright hero that he is, re refuses the advances of the queen Antea, and is then accused by her of attempted rape. The king Proetos doesn't wish to kill Bellerophon himself, so he sends him to Lycia with a folded tablet containing, in translation, baneful signs, or in Greek, semata lungra. These baneful signs, we are told, contained a message to kill the bearer and were inscribed on a folding tablet. This may not seem like much of a detail, but this pseudo-mention of writing in the Iliad was hotly debated for a long time. Many scholars saw it as capturing a time when writing was quasi-popular, enough that it would be known about but not widespread. The modern consensus is that this is a false archaism by the poet, who is trying to make his tale seem older than it really is, by including details that make it appear old. 
Interestingly, similar folding tablets that Homer describes here have been found to a time dating before the Iliad's suspected transcription, lending some credence to this theory. But what I think is most interesting in Glaucus' story about the seductress queen and the baneful signs is its similarity to other Near Eastern stories. The seductive queen story is also found in the book of Genesis in the biblical story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, where quite similarly, Potiphar's wife tries to convince Joseph to sleep with her, and when he refuses, she accuses him to her husband of trying to force her. Likewise, these baneful signs, or more generally, pattern of a messenger who knows not the content of the message that they carry, is described in the book of Samuel in the Bible. King David sends a message by Uriah the Hittite to Job, instructing Job to let Uriah die in battle so David can marry his wife. The shared similarities in the story patterns indicate that bards who composed the Iliad must have borrowed and adjusted it many times, incorporating new elements of story and plot to suit their needs, much like they did with the Mesopotamian story pattern involving Aphrodite that we just covered in the previous episode. The Iliad was a fluid and living story at one point in its history, and teasing apart the different pieces is just part of the ongoing legacy that is left to us. Glaucus then completes his genealogical tale, saying his father Hippolochus, that is Bellerophon's son, sent him to Troy with the directive to always be the best and to be better than all others, not to disgrace the line of my fathers who were far the best. These same words are repeated in Book 11, when Nestor recounts what Peleus told Achilles before leaving to Troy, and in general they sum up the Homeric warrior ethos. The end of Glaucus' tale would normally denote the beginning of combat for two heroes, as we have seen before, but this time it is different. It turns out that Diomedes' grandfather, Oinus, once hosted Bellerophon in an act of Xenia and exchanged gifts with him, and that bond of Xenia passed down through his father to him. I discussed the concept of Xenia and its importance in the Iliad, and in ancient Greece in general, back in episode 5. Diomedes goes on to describe the gifts he still has from that meeting between their grandfathers, and declares that Glaucus should be his guest in Argos, and that he in Lycia, and that they should avoid each other in battle. The two then exchange their armor in a pact of friendship, and the text reads, quote, But Zeus the son of Cronus took away the wits from Glaucus, who exchanged with Diomedes son of Tydeus armor of gold for that bronze, a hundred oxen's value for nine. End quote. A bit of an awkward interjection here, and one that has been hotly debated. Some scholars think it's a remnant of an anti-Trojan vein in the Iliad. Others, a bit of humor on the part of the poet, not at Glaucus's expense, but on the motif of armor exchange as a pact of friendship, seeing as how armor can cost such vastly different amounts. But I like to read this in a Glaucus-positive light. Glaucus can be read as being not too old in the Iliad. He functioned as Sarpedon's ward, it seems, and at one point Sarpedon gives to him a speech on how leaders ought to behave. We can also plainly tell that Glaucus would have lost his duel to Diomedes, who just moments before was wounding gods. So this armor exchange, in exchange for living, doesn't seem too bad. Seems to me that the young Glaucus used his good sense to find common ground between him and an enemy, while ostensibly making it seem like he was prepared to fight quite the diplomatic victory for Glaucus. But this scene also demonstrates the possibility for peace between enemies, if the higher ideals common to both sides can be found. In this case, it is the sacred bond of Xenia that saves the two soldiers from one another, 
but it also shows the chivalry and honor that can overcome hate within warfare. Finally, we have reached the meat of Book 6. Hector has run all the way to Troy. Took him long enough. But all of this preamble we have just heard of supplicating heroes and armor exchanges is important prefacing information for what we're about to hear concerning Hector. In Troy, Hector will meet three women. First, his mother Hecuba, then Helen herself, and finally, his own wife Andromache. Remember, his purpose for returning to Troy was only to ask his mother to make offerings to Athena at her temple. But upon entering the gates of Troy, Hector is swarmed with the daughters and wives of the Trojans, asking about their brothers, sons, kinsmen, fathers, and husbands. Hector, as a prince of Troy, is quite the public figure, and this interaction sets the tone of his return to the city. He then reaches King Priam's palace and is greeted by his mother Hecuba, who, like the caring mother she is, is concerned for her son and beckons him to rest and drink some wine. The poet here has given the perfect opportunity for Hector to characterize himself in reply. I have mentioned before of Hector's piety towards the gods, and it is reinforced here. Quote, do not to me offer up wine, sweet to the spirit, my lady mother, lest you sap my limbs of strength, and I forget my courage, and I shrink from pouring a libation of dark gleaming wine to Zeus, with unwashed hands. A man cannot pray to the son of Cronus, of the dark clouds spattered with blood and gore. End quote. Firstly, brave Hector does not want the numbing that wine brings, that which is historically quite popular, even necessary for frontline soldiers. His courage is self-sufficient, and his reasons for fighting are very clear. Secondly, he wouldn't dream of pouring a libation to Zeus with dirty hands. His care when dealing with matters of the divine sets him apart, and it becomes apparent why Zeus loves Troy and Hector in particular. Hector delivers his command to his mother that she and the other women should make sacrifices at the temple of Athena and place a lovely robe there. He also mentions he is going to find Paris and force him to return to battle, saying to their mother, quote, And I will seek after Paris to summon him. If he should choose to hear me speak, would that the earth would gape to swallow him on the spot, for the Olympian has raised him to be a great affliction to the Trojans and to great-hearted Priam and to his children. If I could see him on his way down into the house of Hades, I would declare my heart had forgotten sorrow. End quote. Quite the brutal thing to say about your brother to your mother. But such condemnations can only be made within families, can't they? It seems unlikely that Hector would speak so candidly to anyone but Paris and his mother. Additionally, remember Hector's sentiment here, as he will be meeting with Paris in just a few moments. Queen Hecuba, without reply, sets straight away to Hector's command, and chooses as the robe of offering a particular garment, one from Sidon that Paris procured on his return from capturing Helen. This she sets at the altar of Athena, and the priestess asks that Athena break the spear of Diomedes and that he should die. From our viewpoint, outside the story, we can see the irony at work here. The women of Troy praying to Athena, who is dead set against their city, to kill her own champion and entreating her with an item symbolic of the act which enraged her in the first place. We are well aware of the fate of these women when Troy falls, and tragic ironic acts such as these cast the characters in a deep pathos. Hector then makes his way to Paris's house, and finds him handling his armor, not wearing it. We, the reader, know what he has just been up to. Hector, we are told, is holding his spear, eleven cubits in length, which is about 16 to 20 feet long, almost comically long and unwieldy 
in an indoor setting, but no matter. The point is that Hector is prepared for war, and Paris tarries. Hector carries the anger he voiced to his mother from the previous scene with him, and spares his brother none of it, declaring that men are dying on his account and that Paris would confront another should he see him in a similar position hanging back from war. Again, a very harsh, yet fair assessment of Paris, who replies that he was just about to leave. A classic excuse for someone who is expected elsewhere, isn't it? We now hear from Helen, who begins with some self-reproach and some reproach aimed at Paris. She speaks of her husband, quote, Would I were the wife of a better man, a man who knew what righteous blame was and the many reproaches that men make. End quote. Paris, obviously, is oblivious to both righteous blame and the reproaches of others, seemingly respecting only the reproach of his brother Hector and ignoring all other calls for him to return Helen, as we shall see. But you know who does respect righteous blame and the reproaches of men? Hector. Helen has artfully highlighted the difference between the two brothers, Paris ignorant of all criticism, and Hector too painfully conscious of it, even to his own detriment. But Helen, like Hecuba, and as we shall soon see, like Hector's wife Andromache, beckons Hector to sit and rest. He again refuses. His duty is too strong. But the last thing I would like to highlight in Helen's speech is this. She says, quote, We on whom Zeus has laid this evil fate, so that even after this there will be songs of us for men to come. End quote. Quite a self-aware comment from Helen, cause of the Trojan War. Like we heard in Iliad Book 3, when she was weaving a robe, detailing the trials of the Trojans and Achaeans, Helen seems acutely aware of her role in all of this. She, as a semi-divine figure, lends weight and grave importance to such a phrase. It could also be that the Iliad is reinforcing its own authority, because we are, after all, reading the story that Helen is referring to here. Continuing on, Hector replies to Helen, with all the courtesy and kindness that his father Priam showed her in Book 3 during the Pagoscopia. He mentions he intends to visit his own house and see his wife and son, finishing his speech by revealing that he does not know if he will ever return to his home again after this. Much like Hector's final comment to his mother Hecuba, this one does much to set the stage for his next meeting. Hector sets off to his own house, in which we are told is next to Paris's. He pauses at the threshold of his home, as symbolically he is not to return home ever again after this. But he doesn't find Andromache there and the housekeeper informs him they are at the walls of Troy watching the battle. He sets out towards the Skian gates, and there encounters his wife, who is running to meet him. The narrator tells us Andromache's backstory, that she is the daughter of great-hearted Eetion, who ruled Thebes, but not the famous Thebes, a different one, near Troy. She and the nurse holding her child run up to Hector, and we are told about Hector's own dear son, still just a baby, whom Hector calls Scamandrios after the river, but everyone else calls Astyanax, meaning High King, since he is the son of the defender of the city. The poet includes such personal, humanizing details for us, because this is a scene we are meant to feel deeply. Andromache approaches Hector, who only smiles at his son, while she weeps. You can feel her anxiety from looking over the battle and not seeing her husband as the Trojans are retreating, only to find him running back into battle and the swirl of emotions that this invokes in the concerned wife. Andromache first berates her husband for this lack of pity for her and their child, admitting that the Achaeans will soon kill him. 
Then through her own voice, she reveals more to us about her past, that it was actually Achilles who slew her father and her seven brothers on the same day. Achilles then ransomed Andromache's mother for a large sum, but she was slain by Artemis. The tragic irony here is that Achilles will shortly slay her husband Hector as well, but instead of respecting his body like Achilles did of Aetion's by burning his corpse with full armor, Achilles will desecrate, mutilate, and abuse Hector's corpse for a sickening amount of time. The poet is setting us up for an emotionally big fall, as we see what heights of chivalry and honor Achilles will descend from once his rage is unleashed upon Hector. Andromache finishes her reply to Hector, quote, Hector, so you are father to me, an honored mother, and my brother, and you are my strong husband. End quote. In a world with virtually no female agency, familial ties are everything. Andromache has lost all of hers. Her only source of freedom and safety comes from Hector. As she pleads with her husband, she does offer some sound military advice, telling Hector, who normally fights on the front lines, that a better strategy would be to station the army at the weakest point on the wall and protect it from there. A desperate appeal to try and keep Hector safe and away from harm. Hector's reply to his wife, I can only imagine, would break her. He says all of these things concern him too, but that he dreads hearing what the Trojans would think of him if he were not brave and stayed away from the fighting. Quote, My spirit does not allow me, for I have learned to be brave, always, and to fight among the front rank of Trojans, winning great glory for my father and for me. End quote. These words encapsulate the warrior ethos that both sides strive for, being brave, being preeminent among your peers. But for what? Hector could defend the city from the walls like his wife suggested. He doesn't need to gain glory to keep his family safe. In this way, Hector is swept up along with all the other heroes in the tragic irony of the Trojan War that Achilles rallies against. You fight for glory, then die all the same. The next few lines contain a prescient prediction by Hector about the future of the war. He states that he knows in his heart Troy will fall, but that the suffering of all the people does not distress him as much as Andromache's cries would as she is led away in slavery. But may the heaped earth cover me over dead before I ever hear you cry as you are dragged away, he says. It's an extremely raw and pessimistic observation about the war, and it appears to us, at least, that Hector has resigned himself towards the fate of his city. He knows it will fall. The mention of Andromache's day of slavery is made all the more somber due to the silent presence of their young child's nurse herself a slave during this whole meeting. Hector says all of this, feels all of this, but still chooses to fight for glory, bravely in the front lines. In a way, it appears foolish that Hector may risk everything just for glory. But I think Hector is different. He's aware of his destiny. He knows his purpose, and yet he doesn't fight against it. He knows he must die, and instead of trying to avoid it, he leans into it. Scholar E.T. Owens sums it up in his book, The Story of the Iliad, better than I ever could. Quote, the hero is very far from being the master of his fate, but one thing there is that is his, power to make his life glorious. Because it is all that a man has and is, because it is brief and uncertain and death ends all, man has the opportunity to transform his life into a splendid thing by his courage in risking it. 
Thus man imposes a value upon life, and he creates it out of the very thing that robs it of value. He cheats death of its victory by making it the servant of his glory. End quote. Now, what follows Hector's reply to his wife is a scene so tender and lifelike, so real in the truest sense, that I always find it hard to believe it's from a story over 2,000 years old. Quote, so speaking, shining Hector reached out for his son, but the child turned away, back to the breast of his fair-belted nurse, crying, frightened at the sight of his own father, struck with terror seeing the bronze helmet and crest of horsehair, nodding dreadfully as he thought from the topmost of the helmet. They burst out laughing, his dear father and lady mother. At once, shining Hector lifted the helmet from his head and placed it, gleaming, on the earth. Then he rocked his beloved son in his arms and kissed him. End quote. Little Astyanax, the little lord of the city, has never seen Hector the warrior before, and cries at the sight of his own father decked out in armor. Only once Hector removes the helmet that he is known for, as indeed no character is called of the flashing helm or bright helmeted as much as he, only then, when he places it on the ground, does his own son recognize him. His father and mother laugh, and Dramaki through her tears at their baby's misunderstanding. Andromache must know this could be the last time they are all together as a family, and the brief comedic incident provides relief for the characters as well as for us. Homer is also playing with the words here, as normally in these metrical circumstances, the earth would receive a formulaic epithet, mother of many, as it does in other locations. But instead, the epithet is given to the helmet, describing it as gleaming. The mix-up of the expected epithet for a different one directs our attention to the helmet and to the reason of the child's fright, and to Hector's defining attribute. Hector prays that his son may grow up to be as conspicuous in fighting as he is, as courageous and strong as he is. He hands him back to Andromache, who was laughing as she cried, and he is moved. The tenderness and perhaps anxiety of this scene causes a change in Hector. He then begins to pity his wife and takes a very fatalist approach, saying that no one will hurl him down to Hades against fate and that no one, cowardly or brave, escapes destiny. This is the opposite of what he previously said to her. Hector's ability to hold these two thoughts in his mind, his surety of the fall of Troy and his own death, and the opposite assessment that no man will hurl him to Hades against fate, are what makes Hector so human to me. This is why he is Hector the mortal man. He can be sure of his eventual death, but still reject that thought and try to defend Troy. To me, Hector is one of the truly living characters contained in the Iliad. I remember after the first couple of times I read the story, I would get discouraged when beginning the book because I would have to relive his death one more time. But this reunion between husband and wife must come to an end. So Hector sends Andromache off to direct her handmaids. She leaves, all the while turning back to look, and returns to their house. She then stirs all the women into lamentation for Hector because they do not expect him to return home again. Homer marks the transition from domestic to military affairs with a dazzling simile. As Paris runs through the city like a horse breaking his tether and, and running across the plain to his favorite river, he catches up with Hector as he is about to leave and apologizes to his elder brother for being slow. Now remember how Hector last addressed Paris. 
It wasn't nice. He even said some real mean stuff to their mother earlier in this book. And now Paris has just shown up late to the war he caused after Hector has just said goodbye to his wife for what could be the last time. But Hector holds none of this in him. His demeanor is changed after his goodbye with his wife and son, and he is softened by them. He replies to Paris, saying, quote, Strange one. No man who is fair could slight your work in battle since you are brave. But you hang back by choice and are not willing. And for that I grieve deep in my heart when I hear insults about you, from the Trojans who suffer much hardship on your account. End quote. Hector cannot help but admit that his brother is brave and despite openly insulting Paris multiple times, cannot help but grieve in his heart when he hears insults about him. Now I can speak from personal experience that insults between brothers are fair game, even expected at times. But Zeus helped those who would pick on your brothers. So Hector cuts his own brother some slack, and the two set off back to war. In my research for Book 6, I noticed that it is comparatively more thematically complete than some of the other books in the Iliad. What I mean by this is that events specifically in this book seem to build and echo other events inside it, more so than other chapters in the story. For example, right at the beginning of Book 6, we have the refused ransom of Adrestos by Menelaus and Agamemnon showcasing the brutality of the Achaeans and subtly implying the outcome of the war for all sons of Troy. Agamemnon is effectively stating that he will commit genocide, and this initial scene sets the backdrop for the whole book, especially the scenes with little baby Astyanax in them. In the Trojan cycle tradition, Astyanax was actually thrown from the walls of Troy upon its sacking, either by Neoptolemus, Achilles' son, or Odysseus, depending on the tradition. And this fact would no doubt be known to listeners of the Iliad, who would be aware of much more source material than we ourselves are. The next major scene is the meeting between Diomedes and Glaucus. Their behavior and respect for the higher laws of Xenia demonstrate the honor and chivalry that can be found in war, and gives a glimmer of positivity that segues us from the horrors of battle to the domesticity of Hector's life in Troy. When Hector does arrive in Troy, the first thing he encounters is the very people that rely on and expect things of him. These women pleading for information about their male kin highlight Hector's own familiar relationships that we are about to be shown. Upon meeting his mother, the anxiety of the Trojan women is given a voice, one concern for her son Hector, urging him to rest. The Queen of Troy loves her son like any mother does. All these scenes are pointing to the meeting between Hector and Andromache building and swelling our anticipation and pity for Hector's wife. Homer does not fail to deliver during this meeting, as we are made to feel all the sadness, fear, hope, and love that Andromache feels for her husband and their child. The conflicted emotions of Hector for fear of his wife and son give way to the touching moment where baby Astyanax is afraid of his father's helmet, and the family laughs together for what could be the last time. Well, I guess not technically the last time. Hector will spend one more night in Troy at the end of Book 7, but it is clear symbolically that this meeting is meant to be their last. Well, that's Book 6. I hope you have come to appreciate Hector the mortal man, because he won't be around forever. Homer has certainly loaded him with enough emotional weight that his death will surely be a tragic one. The next episode, covering Book 7, will feature a duel between the mighty Ajax and Hector, both bastions of defense for their respective sides. 
As always, if you're loving the podcast and want to hear even more, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, or follow me on Substack to get all the episodes and anything else I find interesting on the Homeric epics all for free. Until then, erostai akustoi filor.